This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The guest speaker is featured on this message. Well, what a privilege to be with you all on uh, Orphan Sunday. It's a chance to stand with churches all over the world who today are also observing this piece of God's heart. Um, and, and just that idea that there are people literally on the other side of the globe right now praising the same Father and talking about and observing this little piece of His heart. And so it's a privilege to be here with you. My wife, Trisha, and I, we've been married for 22 years, and we went to college together. That's where we met. We got married six days after graduating. Um, we were committed to waiting until after we graduated from college. We waited six days, got married, went into uh, inner city ministry. We moved into an inner city neighborhood in Denver and started working with children and families. It didn't take very long before we realized that over half the kids that we worked with on a weekly basis had been touched by foster care at some point in their lives. Not only the kids, but in some cases their parents as well. So it was kids like uh, Mikey, it was kids like Anthony and Tony and Richard and Danny and Martha and Freddie. It was kids like these that we got to know. Uh, they all had a piece to play in moving us toward this journey of foster care, and we eventually became foster parents in 2000. Now, if you know anything about foster care adoption at all, you may have heard a rumor that there's some paperwork involved um, with it. There, there is a little bit. And um, <clears throat> one of the pieces of paperwork is this form that has a list of things that may or may not be true of, of kids that, that could come into your home. But what you have to do is you have to decide if, yes, I'd be willing to take in a child who experienced this, or no, I would not, or maybe I might consider. So it might be things like, would you be willing to take a child who's had a, who has a hearing impairment? Yes, no, or might consider. Would you be willing to take a child who has been physically abused? Yes, no, or might consider. Now, I don't remember all the things that we checked or didn't check on that list, except for two things I know for sure. Two things I know for sure we said are, uh, we can only do one at a time. So there was a question about sibling groups. No, we can't do sibling groups. We're 26 years old. We uh, had never parented before. We didn't know what we were doing. One at a time seems like a pretty fair uh, idea, right? It seems like a pretty wise idea. So we said one at a time. And the other thing we said is no major medical needs. Like it didn't even cross our minds that we, uh, that anybody would have, would be insane enough to place a child with medical needs with two 26-year-olds who had never had experience with medical needs. So we didn't even consider checking that box, right? And so we get this call from the social worker and uh, she says, hey, we've got these twins, now, for those of you doing, that, are, that struggle with math, twins is more than one uh, <laughs> child. <clears throat> We've got these twins. Uh, they're in the hospital. They've been in the hospital since they were born. They've been there three months. They uh, were born 10 weeks premature at about two pounds. One had open heart surgery at 11 days old, almost died. They're both on oxygen, will probably be on oxygen for up to 18 months. When they pull the oxygen tube out of their nose, which they do from time to time, they start turning blue within 10 to 12 seconds. They might have cerebral palsy, but we won't know that until they're two years old. What do you guys think? <laughs> well, I'm thinking you probably didn't read my paperwork. <laughs> start there. 
But my wife, being who my wife is, I'm so glad that she's here today, just an amazing woman, um, and, and I hope that you get a chance to, to meet her. But my wife, being who she is, um, being just compassionate uh, and kind, she just said, well, let's just go, let's just go meet them. Like, we don't have to make any decision. You already know how the story ends. And so we go down to the hospital, University Hospital, the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. And, there's, um, and, and, and these two girls are there. They've been there three months. They are giants compared to the rest of the babies in there because they've been there three months. They're five pounds. And they like dwarf everybody else in the unit. But they have these tubes and cords running everywhere. And I remember looking over the edge of the crib that day, looking at these two beautiful girls. And I... You know, as, as, you know, those of us uh, men, you know, you, you grow up as a boy and, and you, you sort of wonder, do I have what it takes? That's always what you're asking yourself, right? Do I have what it takes to jump over this creek? Uh, do I have what it takes to hang on to my buddy's bike while he rides down the street without letting go? You know, <laughs> um, crazy things that we do. Do I have what it takes? And I'm looking over the edge of this crib and I am certain that I do not have what it takes to do this. But I felt like God impressed something on me that, he, that, that, was, that, that, I had, that he had led me to this thought before, um, which is, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you feel like you have what it takes or not. If I ask you to do something, I will give you what it takes. And so uh, we said yes. Um, we got a crash course in how to take care of babies with major medical needs, uh, two of them, just reiterating. And... Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and then we, we loaded them up in this double stroller. We have a picture of the day they came home, uh, these two little girls. And, um, and God did amazing things over those next few months. Uh, we were locked up in the house, couldn't leave because they were susceptible to respiratory illnesses. But um, we had this amazing time. And we would say it was one of the sweetest times of our marriage. Here, here's them just a few weeks down the road after that. And then uh, this next picture is them a couple of months ago for their senior pictures. Beautiful girls, inside and out, uh, love the Lord, and we're so proud of them. They're 18, they're seniors, um, and they're amazing. So we, saw, so we got to adopt them at three and a half years old. They didn't end up having cerebral palsy, they, um, but we got to adopt them at three and a half years old. Uh, we had other kids come and go during our 10 years as foster parents. Uh, five of them stayed, as Rob said, uh, and here's the rest of the crew uh, here. Um, so there's the twins of the two that look alike. And then there are, there's Mariah on the left, who is 13. Uh, she is uh, creative and funny. She's kind of a spark plug uh, of the family. And she, when she was five, we were sitting at the dinner table, and she goes, hey, mom and dad, when I grow up, I want to have 10 kids. And we're like, okay, all right. And then she said, and I'm going to live here with you guys forever. <laughs> She's hilarious, and she's here. I'm Ryan. Um, and then there's Josh, uh, who is our only, our only man-child, uh, who is um, an engineering mind, who's, who's, but sensitive and sweet and takes care of his mama. Um, really great kid. And then Sophia, who is our warrior princess, who can recite movie lines like nobody else and can cartwheel around a pond. She's literally done that. So um, that's our crew. <clears throat> Um, but today on Orphan Sunday, it's a great day to remind ourselves, and that's why we do it, right? It's a great day to remind ourselves that we serve the God 
of renewal, a God who takes broken situations, broken things, and he uh, brings restoration. And so we're going to talk about that. We're going to dive in a little deeper. But before we, before we get there, I want to start with uh, some basic assumptions um, that we, we need to make sure we, we cover. Um, a grasp of this is, is essential for the rest of our time today. So uh, we've got to start with the gospel, right? Because the gospel itself is a roadmap for us in terms of what does it mean to enter into broken situations and bring redemption, to bring restoration, so as we look at that um, roadmap, what we're going to do is in, in the next 90 seconds, we're going to walk through the Bible from beginning to end in 90 seconds and, and map out what that, what that looks like. Um, we're going to skip a few details. Um, don't worry. And, and so let's, let's do it. So God created us to have relationship with him. But in the Garden of Eden, there was the fall which introduced sin and death into the world. Now, sin and death, that's, that separated us from God and our relationship with him. It separated us. And so there in the garden, we became spiritual orphans. Now, just to note, sin and death are also the reason we have physical orphans. Without sin and death in the world, there would be no orphans, physically or spiritually. <clears throat> but even after that, God has always continued to pursue us. Over and over again, daily, we make decisions to confirm what Adam and Eve chose that day. We confirm that we agree with them. The rebellion is a good idea. And we continue to do that, but God still continues to pursue us and has throughout the centuries. And he pursued us all the way to the cross, where he sent his son to live a perfect life, to die a painful death, to pay the perfect ransom, the adoption fee, if you will, paid the adoption fee so that you and I could be a part of his family. Like, he could have offered us forgiveness on the cross, but he didn't stop there. He did more than that. He not only offered us forgiveness on the cross, he offered us a place in his family, a, a chance to be co-heirs with Christ and to be able to call the God of the universe, Abba, Daddy. Then Jesus died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he left us here as the church to reflect the, the heart of pursuit, our, our daddy's, our adopted daddy's heart of pursuit in a hurting and broken world. He took off, we're here, we're here to reflect his heart so the world can know him too. And then, and that's why we're here and now, and then Jesus is coming back. Say that again, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, there is going to be no more crying, there's going to be no more tears, there's going to be no more pain, there's going to be no more sin and death. And since there's going to be no more sin and death, there's going to be no more orphans, spiritual or physical. And so we're here today on Orphan Sunday in November in this church waiting for that day to come. And it is coming. But as we reflect on our Father's heart of pursuit in a hurting and broken world, um, the book of Nehemiah serves as a beautiful framework of what it looks like to be a part of renewing broken things. 
And so that's what we're going to do today. Now, I've been planning for some weeks, knowing that I was coming here, I've been planning for some weeks to, to go to the book of Nehemiah and to talk from the book of Nehemiah. And then this past week, I, I just happened to, to go to your guys' website, the church's website, to look around and get familiar. And I, and I discovered that you guys spent a good chunk of last year uh, in the book of Nehemiah. And so... Um, Pastor Craig did an unbelievable job of walking through the context of the book and, the, and, and all of the many, applica many applications of, of the book. And so I've got nothing to add to what he said. I got a chance to listen to some of those messages. Just phenomenal. Um, and if you weren't here during that time, check out the podcast. They're, they're great. I've got nothing to add to that. All I hope to do today is, you know, there are many applications of the book of Nehemiah because we apply it to all kinds of brokenness. And so all I want to do today is to take some of those principles and apply it to this brokenness that we call fatherless, this, this brokenness that we call orphanhood, or not having a family. So that's what we're going to do today. <clears throat> so here's a brief overview of Nehemiah, uh, just as a refresher to catch up. After Jerusalem was destroyed, the people of Israel were exiles. Nehemiah was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, and Nehemiah's brother comes and reports that the wall is, is destroyed and, and the gates are burned. And so Nehemiah is devastated to hear this. He, he mourns and he fasts and he prays, and, and King Artaxerxes sees Nehemiah's sadness. He asks about it, and then Nehemiah tells him that Jerusalem is undefended, and he asks for permission to go and rebuild the wall. Not only does the king give Nehemiah permission to go and build the wall, he basically hands him like the equivalent of a, of a million-dollar gift card to Home Depot and says, hey, you, you know, go to, the, go to my guy who's, who's in the forest that's got all the lumber, and, and he'll give you whatever you need. And I got to, th I got to thinking about this. I got to thinking, you know, what would I do with a million-dollar gift card to Home Depot? I, I think I'd come out with a million dollars worth of, like, power tools, uh, no wood to build anything with, and probably a Snickers bar and a Dr. Pepper on the way out. <laughs> But not Nehemiah. He actually got what he needed. Uh, and, um, and so he organizes everyone in the groups, give, gives everyone a section of the wall. Everyone has an assignment. And then they, they have opposition. But through their opposition, they build the wall in 52 days. And then they end in worship. <clears throat> so there are three observations of this story I want to point out specifically as we dig in a little bit deeper. The first is, when Nehemiah saw brokenness, he believed he could do something about it. When Nehemiah saw brokenness, he believed he could do something about it. He was sad, but he was prayed up. Like, he was ready, right? He'd been spending time with God, mourning and fasting. So he was prayed up, and so in Nehemiah 2, let's look at that verse up here, Nehemiah 2, 4 through 5. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, prayed up, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Now listen, guys, the wall of an entire city is broken down, and here's this joker who says, I'm going to go fix it. He believed that it could be done. We have hundreds of thousands of children in this country in foster care. We have over 100,000 kids waiting to be adopted. We have children in this very county who've been waiting for a very long time for families. And 
a normal response, the normal way that human, we as humans often respond to those kinds of needs is we, we kind of think that's a shame. Someone ought to do something about that. Politicians ought to do something about that. Social workers ought to do something about that. The people that get paid to care about other people should do something about that. But a Nehemiah response says, I'm going to do something about that. Now, let me be clear. I want to be clear about my intentions here today. They're, they're not to convince anyone in this room to adopt and foster. That's not the point of this Sunday. That's not a point of, of why I'm here. I actually don't think that would be a good use of my time because there are just a few of you in here that feel ready at this point to do something like that. That's a big commitment, right? So I'm not actually talking to those few of you that might feel that way. Um, love to talk to you afterwards. But who, who I'm really here for is everybody else. This message today is for everybody else because there are so many things you can do for kids who need families besides being the one to give them the family. And so we're going to talk about that. I'm here to ask you to consider a Nehemiah type of response to children in foster care in this community and believe with me that it's a problem that can be solved. One of the things that I believe is I believe that we serve a God of more than enough. We serve a God who, when he had the people of Israel out in the desert, when he provided manna for them, he did not provide not enough. He did not provide just enough. He provided more than enough. When Jesus needed to give lunch to 5,000 people on a hillside, he didn't provide not enough. He didn't provide just enough. He provided more than enough. And I believe that we live in a country where we have a foster care crisis. It is huge, but numerically, it's a solvable thing. Like, there are 400,000 kids. There's 350,000 churches. There are 60 kids waiting for adoption in Collin County, approximately. 60. How many churches do we have in Collin County? <clears throat> and the average size of them is pretty big, right? So, I believe that... God could use us as the body of Christ in this country to provide more than enough for kids in foster care. When I say more than enough, what, I mean, what do I mean? I mean in four areas. More than enough foster homes for every child to have an ideal placement so siblings don't have to be split up, so kids don't have to be stacked one on top of the other. More than enough foster homes. More than enough adoptive homes for every waiting child who needs to be adopted. More than enough help for biological families who are trying to stabilize and are trying to reunify and get back together. See, one of the narratives that, that we've kind of bought into, I think, is that foster care is about taking kids out of bad families and putting them into good ones. And we lived in this city and we saw both sides. We saw these parents who were struggling and trying. And, and if anybody, ought to, anybody in the world ought to believe and the power of God to bring redemption to a broken situation, to bring people out of addiction, and to reunify families, it ought to be us. It ought to be the body of Christ that believes that's possible. And so foster care is not just about taking kids out of bad families and putting them into good ones. It's also about us coming around biological families who really would like to see this redemption in their lives and introducing them to the one who can bring it and walking alongside them. And then so forth is more than enough support for all of these families, adoptive, foster, and biological families. You'll find yourself somewhere in those statements, but more than enough, and I believe it can be done. What I'm here today to do is to ask you to believe with me that more than enough is possible in this county 
And this church has been a part of that and continues to be a part of that. And, and so it's not a matter of this church being a part of it. It's just a matter of you individually. What part do you play with this church in that? <clears throat> Which brings me to observation number two. <clears throat> when they built the wall, everyone did their part. Let's look at chapter three. Next to them, Uziel, son of Harahiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphael, the son of Hera, ruler, half, half, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Everyone had a part of the problem that they were responsible for. No one was responsible for the whole thing. Everyone had a part of the problem that they were responsible for. Every person, regardless of their occupation, had a role to play. So what does that mean when it comes to the fatherless? What does that mean um, for us when we're talking about this specific issue of brokenness? Um, let's, I want to show you, we're going to take a, a little bit of a, a detour to Deuteronomy 24. These are instructions for the nation of Israel. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf, we're talking about grain here, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And then it goes on in the next verse to talk about those who, uh, who tend to olive trees and then those who tend to, to grape vines. And so, so it's saying to, hey, you grain farmer, you have a part to play. This was woven into the very fabric of their livelihood. It wasn't up to the professional carers to do something about it. It was up to everybody to set a little bit aside of who they were and what they had to bring, a little bit of their gifts that they were given to pass a little bit of that on to these oppressed groups of people. And so... So whether you are a grain farmer or whether you are an olive guy or a grape girl, it doesn't matter what you do, whether you're an engineer, there is somebody who desperately needs you to use what you have on their behalf. They are alive right now. They desperately need you to use a gift you have, a skill you have, a resource you have on their behalf. Now, I told you an overview of the girl's story, but I saved some of the most important parts of their story for, for here, for right now. You see, um, there are dozens of people that hold a piece of their story that I didn't mention earlier. There's Nurse Heather, who is a neonatal intensive care nurse who was with them for those first three months when she watched these two little girls who didn't have somebody who was, who was visiting them as much as maybe would be ideal. And she got a burden for them. And now Heather, Nurse Heather, she was a new believer. She had just recently come to Christ. She was just trying out this thing we call prayer. And she began to pray for these little girls. And she prayed that God would bring them a family that loved Jesus. And not only that, she would go home to her husband, Fireman Brian, who uh, they would pray together at night for these little girls. And then they would go to their small group and they asked their small group, will you pray for these little girls that they have a family that loves Jesus? And when a family that loves Jesus showed up at the hospital, she was blown away because it was one of the first times that she got to see this God of the universe listen to her and respond and act 
So there was Nurse Heather. Then there was David, a friend of ours from church who, uh, you know, the day that we found out we were getting the girls, our house was in upheaval. We were in the middle of a remodel. We had plywood for floors in our kitchen. So we're off at the hospital learning how to disconnect oxygen tubes. And David is at our house with a buddy who I don't to this day remember his name, the buddy's name. They're installing floors in our house so that when we came home, we had floors. <clears throat> There's Lynn, who was a co-worker of ours, who picked up the double stroller that you saw in the earlier picture on the way to the hospital to help us get home. And she was constantly helping us with the girls. In fact, to this day, all of our kids, some of whom have maybe seen her a couple of times in their life, call her Auntie Lynn. That was a co-worker. There was June and Steve and, and, and Diane and John. June and Steve and John were all physicians in our church. Diane was a social worker. They were the only people we knew that were qualified to, to watch these babies who had these medical needs, which is crazy that they actually, you know, they, they let us parent them, but then nobody else is qualified to watch them. So they, they, they let these, but they're the only reason we got a date for those months was because of, of those guys, because they, they, because they were physicians. They had this occupation that they could leverage on behalf of the fatherless. Then there's Bonnie, a lawyer locally who knew we needed help legally to, to go through all this stuff and, and knew that we were 26 years old and in ministry, we couldn't afford it. She came to court and sat with us anyway and gave us advice and helped us through. Every person in this room has someone that desperately needs you to use what you have on their behalf. Then the third observation we get from Nehemiah is, so, so first, he, he believed it was possible. Second, everyone does their part. Third, they did it together. What we see in the same passage that I shared earlier is not only that people did their part, but they did it together. They were unified. They were working in teams. They were looking out for one another. When it comes to this area of renewing broken things, as you know, many people, as you know, suffering can be, a can be a lonely place. Suffering is a lonely place. Many people who suffer, suffer alone. So why is the land of suffering such a lonely place? Because nobody wants to go there, man. Like, who, who, who signs up to get on the bus to go to suffering? If you're suffering, people aren't generally looking for a way to join you in it. In our flesh, particularly in our culture, we seek to do what we can to insulate ourselves from suffering. We try to get as far away from it as possible. But then we look at Jesus. And he didn't run from suffering. He actually ran toward it. He didn't go around the neighborhoods where suffering existed. He went into them. He talked to prostitutes. He dealt with sinners. He touched lepers. He sought out suffering. Children in foster care are suffering. Many of them feel alone. I want, you to, I want to read this quote to you. Um, this is a 30-year-old man who grew up as an orphan. Um, and he spoke a few years ago at a conference uh, that I was at. I want to read what he said. It's a quote. <clears throat> when I grew up in the orphanage, it was Christians who came and built nicer things. Christians who bought us beds, clothing, and provided money monthly for food. It was a Christian who wrote a letter in a shoebox who first told me I was loved. It was the Christians who met all my physical and material needs in that orphanage. But 
It was also Christians who neglected my biggest need. Children in orphanages don't need more money, nicer buildings, or better clothes. I'm not an orphan because I lost my home or provisions. I'm an orphan because I lost my parents. I needed a mom and a dad. I needed a family. Christians treated all my temporary symptoms of need but never cured my long-term disease of being an orphan. I am still an orphan. So now you're saying, so Jason, you just told us a few minutes ago that you weren't here to convince us to, to, to adopt, to foster, and here you are saying that, that what kids most need is a, is a family. Um, I don't understand how those go together. <clears throat> it absolutely goes together because what we have to remember is we can get in this trap of doing a lot of good things for kids and families, and in many ways, some of those things sort of alleviate our own guilt or make us feel good or, you know, whatever. We have to remember the end goal here. Whatever we do, it needs to push towards this end goal of a child experiencing family, physically and spiritually. And so, so that's just a, a way of instructing us that, that what we do for children matters. We, this is a, a process where you get in and you begin to learn um, about what are the real needs. What are real needs and how can my gifts be used toward this idea of permanency. And so, you know, the best way to keep suffering from being a lonely place is three words. Go there together. Go there together. If you want to keep suffering from being a lonely place, go there together. Grab some other folks from your small group and say, hey, let's go step into the rubble together. Let's go support this family who has given a permanent home and let's make sure that they have everything they need. I was recently with a ministry in Georgia who uh, in, in that state, 50% of foster parents are done before the one-year mark. They bail out. With this ministry who provides believers to surround foster families, 90% of their foster parents make it past the year mark. It matters. Go there together. You know, when you enter into the rubble, when you enter with other people, it will be hard, but it will be hard together. You got to say we have some rebuilding to do, and the only way to get it done is to do it together. So, one of the things that we often say, we often think about foster care, adoption, orphan care, all of these things, is that... <clears throat> This is a situation where we go in and we rescue others from suffering. Um, I would say that's actually not accurate. This isn't a place to go in and rescue children out of suffering. More accurate is it's a place where you go in and you join them in their suffering. There's only one rescuer. There's only one savior. His name is Jesus, and he's done everything that he, that he needed to do on the cross. Our role is not to rescue. Our role is to follow his example of entering into the suffering of others. Because even when you take a child out of a situation that's difficult and you put them in your home, they've experienced, they've been sinned against. They've experienced a lot of things. And they're going to suffer for that. Does Jesus bring healing? Yes. Does Jesus bring hope? Yes. And part of all of that is built into the process and the reason he puts you there to help them through that. And there are families going through that right now in this church and in this community who could really use somebody to enter into suffering with them. 
as they enter into that suffering with a child. When you see a family enter into that suffering with a kiddo, don't let them do it alone. Do it with them. Because all of us are better than one of us. I want to close with a, a story. Um, there's a farmer in Nebraska. Uh, back in the 80s, he bought a farm with his wife, Herman Ostry, and his wife, Donna. They bought this farm, and this farm was amazing, but it had this barn, and it had a problem. Uh, it was always flooding. Every time it rained, this barn would flood. And, and so they began to think of solutions, and what do we do, and how do we fix this? And, and they decided that... Um, it was just too expensive to do all the things that they could think of. So at dinner one night, Herman joked around at the dinner table. He said, you know, if we just had enough people, we could pick this thing up and move it. Everybody laughed. Uh, Herman's adult son, Mike, who was about 24, 25 at the time, he went outside the next day with a tape measure, and he started counting the boards in the barn and measuring. And he figured out that the barn, after adding it all up, probably weighed about 16,000 pounds. And if you're going to move it, you would need to put a steel grid in place, and that would add another 3,000 pounds, bringing it to about 19,000 pounds. If the average person could lift about 50 pounds pretty easily, you'd need 344 people working together to pick it up and move it. He, they, they began talking about this. They went to the Centennial Committee because this is a town of Bruno, Nebraska, population like 143 at the time. And um, they went to the Centennial Committee because they're about to celebrate their 100-year anniversary as a town. And they said, hey, could we make this barn moving part of our Centennial celebration? The, the town down the road had just had their Centennial and they just broke the Guinness Book of World Records for making the world's largest fruit kolache. So not to be outdone... Not to be outdone, the Centennial Committee said, yeah, sure, let's do it. So at the end of July 1988, 344 people came to this farm. 4,000 people from 11 states came to watch. <laughs> now, either they were about to witness the greatest catastrophe in the history of Nebraska, or they were about to see something beautiful. And so Herman gets out front. He's got a microphone and a loudspeaker, and he gets everybody gathered around the barn and in the barn. They're all through it, 344 people. He says, on the count of three, we're going to all grab the handles. We're going to reach down and lift up. And in unison, in unity, on the count of three, they lifted up. The barn came up off the ground. And the crowd went wild. They carried the barn 110 feet up six feet of elevation, turned it 90 degrees, and set it back down in a place that was dry. My friends, we've got a foster care system that's flooded. And the normal and natural reaction to flooding is to grab a bucket and start scooping out the water. But pretty soon you realize that if you keep scooping out water with buckets, you just need another bucket. Hey, if we just had another bucket, if we had another social worker, if we had another program, if we had another organization, if we had, and pretty soon somebody, you need to come along and say, you know what, this bucket approach isn't gonna work. It's time to move the barn. It's time to get this thing to dry ground. And what is dry ground when it comes to foster care specifically in this country? It's more than enough. It's not enough just to pick up the barn and move it 10 feet over because it'll keep flooding. Kids will keep coming until we as the body of Christ provide enough families so that kids, I mean, there still will be foster care Kids will still need to be protected and taken care of. But imagine a world in which the county just knows that when a kid comes into care, they can call the church and they will have their pick of literally dozens of amazing families to put them. That's what more than enough looks like. That's what dry ground looks like. So similar to Nehemiah, Farmer Herman, 
believed it could be done. He made a way for everybody to do their part. Everybody did their part and they did it together. So whether we're looking at Nehemiah or Farmer Herman, the God of the universe who has restored us and redeemed us and adopted us into his family, it's possible. Let me pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.